I mean, we're as a society trying to come to grips with a lot, right? How we treat each other, you know, how institutions function and interact with the community. Everybody's got their their own personal thing that really touches them for very personal reasons. I mean, just there's a, there's like a lot of work to do while you're here. Um, and so we could all kind of talk about, oh, okay, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to make a more just world, a more peaceful world, more... But the, at the base, the base pyramid of all of that, to me, is education. All of those systems take people, take people from what is hopefully a more learned society, a more educated society. So, so it's, it's hard to see a more higher leverage, you know, higher ROI, immediate way to, to push, to like move the needle than young people, right? Young people are the, they're the potential energy. Um, they're the unlocked fuel of any country. Um, so, so for me, just being in this space, it's like, I don't want to leave this space. Like we will be here. We might be here for decades. How we doing out there, folks? This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn, the director of Breakline Apex. I am here with my partner in crime. What is up, everybody? My name is Sophia, and I am a talent recruiter here at Breakline. And y'all, we are blessed because we are getting joined by another epic Breakline teammate, Zane. Please introduce yourself for our faithful arena listeners. This is Zane Kanab, sometimes referred to as Cardi Z. Cardi um, Z in the building. Yep. Again, that I like to sport. Um, and I'm the director of customer success at Breakline. Zane, I am so excited that you're in the arena with us for so many different reasons, but in particular because you just got done having a phenomenal conversation with Aaron Odman, the CEO of PSS. Um, would you mind just sharing what were your takeaways? What were your insights? Like, what was what what, what was it like sharing that conversation with Aaron just a moment ago? It was, to be honest, it was, it was really inspirational. I mean, the, the the conversation with Aaron, every time I've been able to talk to him, and I've known him for a little over a year, I walk away with my canteen more filled than I started the conversation mm. yes. with. And he just has such a fascinating story. Um, uh, First-generation American, went to the Naval Academy, went to Harvard, Took a took a sales team at a tech startup from 12 million in revenue to 160 million in revenue. Now is disrupting the education industry um, with this belief that the educators in schools is the are the fastest um, and highest leverage way to create the world we all wish existed, which is just so inspiring. And so that's what he's doing as the as the CEO of PSS right now. Mm. And not only is is he doing that and really living out these incredible values, but he's also crafting solutions left and right for a problem that affects every single American, obviously our educational system. Um, And I mean, one of the things that I definitely hope that people take away is that Aaron is very bold. He speaks a lot to how he wants to be at a place that has no manual, that has no roadmap, and he wants to carve it out himself. Um, and there is is no better type of personality that we want to hear in the arena for our listeners. So Kenny, what were some of the takeaways that you got too? Well, what I loved about this conversation is just the timeliness of it. Um, just hearing from Aaron's experience, he joined PSS in March 
right at the front end of a, of a global pandemic. He's getting there, having to figure out how to solve a very evolving problem. Um, I'm a parent of two school-aged children, so I know what it's like having to do remote learning and distance learning and trying to navigate and the stress that comes along with that. And to be in a leadership position in this ecosystem and have to think critically about um, how we're going to deliver a very basic need of educating our children um, and to hear how he and his team thought about that and to think about the innovative solutions and to be able to operate under pressure and to do it in a way in which they drove some very significant outcomes, which probably, um, you know, mitigated some some very significant challenges to students across uh-huh. the country. That uh-huh. was amazing. And um, I just loved how he brought to bear all of his experiences from his time as a military veteran, from his time as a student in business school to his, for his time in sales. And it just came together in this culmination for a really pivotal moment, not only in his life, but in, in the time here in our country. So that was phenomenal for me to see, for me to listen to. Um, He's a Naval Academy grad, so I had to hold that against him, but he brought it all the way back around. So I got nothing but respect <laughs> for this brother. I am glad he took this time to join us and really share that that message with us. Can I ask one last question since we got Cardi Z in the building with us? Head it to Cardi. Um, for those of you who don't know Zane, he is, he is um, such a good human being, such a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And I got very similar vibes. Like I felt this philosophical vibe throughout the conversation. What was just one insider wisdom as you were learning more about Aaron, as you were having this conversation that you'd love our listeners to kind of take away? You know, it's it's probably, he talks a lot <clears throat> in other forums that I've heard Aaron speak. He talks a lot about his roots. And one thing that I didn't realize we had this shared belief about is this idea of every human being is, is an empty vessel and we all have the capacity to grow and cultivate character within ourselves. And he talks about developing empathy and leading with empathy, leading with generosity. And when he's asked about how, how he, like what, what, where did he get that? He says, he's very honest that he, he cultivates it. And I think all of us are vessels that we have to continue to cultivate the character mm. we want. And the um, just as Aaron is trying to do with the culture that he refers to as generosity culture at PSS, he's building that culture. And to me, the the character of an individual is akin to the culture of an organization. And so that culture is cultivated by every single person that's a part of it. And it just, I mean, that it, it, it touched on the, the, the fundamental harmonic of, of my soul, if you don't mind me philosophizing for a second. Um, Do it. Absolutely, um, absolutely just struck that nerve. And, and I, hope that, uh, I hope that the listeners uh, listening to Aaron are one one thousandth of uh, uh, as inspired as I was. So yeah, just really appreciate being here. I absolutely know that we're going to have so many listeners who also had their fundamental harmonics of their souls touched and attuned to. Well, I don't know about you, Sophia and Zane, but but uh, 
I think we might need to go ahead and just dive into this here episode. What y'all think? I think it's time. Let's do it. We'll see you guys in the arena. It's so nice to see all the Breakline family here. I'm so wonderful and excited to welcome Aaron Odman, uh, a friend, the CEO of PSS, in conversation this evening. Uh, I want to start out by acknowledging some of the context, though, uh, going on in our in our country. Um, one of my one of my favorite quotes is by Plato, and it's "Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle," and it reminds me that everybody in our community and, and, and communities um, are, are hurting today. And we at Breakline just want to acknowledge and, and say that we see you and, and stand with you. And that quote uh, of be kind, I mean, it's pretty appropriate welcoming um, Aaron tonight, because if you know anything or heard podcasts or know about Aaron Odman, he's a man that, that leads with kindness and generosity and puts it at the center of his leadership philosophy. So very excited to, to welcome you, Aaron. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a part of the community. I'm usually on the other side listening to these talks. And I'm quite surprised by the and humbled by the invitation, but um, let's do it. Love it. Thank you, Aaron. All right. Um, so you're the CEO of PSS, who partners with over 2,000 schools around the United States to create meaningful and effective learning experiences. Um, I, I, I wanna dive in though to, to your, your experience, and I know we're gonna unpack a little bit of it, but um, you went to the Naval Academy, spent nine years active duty as a pilot in the Marines, um, flew the MV-22. Uh, that was near and dear to my heart because I sported the CV-22s on the Air Force side when I was an intelligence officer. So familiar with the, the platform. Then went to Harvard Business School, as, as you've put it, when you were trying to figure out what to do with your life uh, when you were growing up. Um, then you joined Encino, another one of our breakline partner companies, um, and, and helped them help that company grow from 12 million in revenue to 160 million in revenue. Um, can you talk to us about your early career path and maybe uh, how that unfolded and, and some of those decisions? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... So I, I appreciate the introduction. My, I think my career path to date is a mixture of um, like dreams and blessings, right? So the, the Naval Academy thing came out of wanting to be a military pilot. Um, and usually I've been able to like folk, like singularly focus on one goal, usually pretty like um, whimsical or childish goal, and then just drive towards that. So um, at nine, I got to spend time with my uncle who's in the Air Force and take me to an air show. And I said, boom, that's it. I'm going to fly military aircraft. So just, just drove towards that. And that um, through a bunch of, you know, curves as life throws, you got me to, got me to Navy um, where I was at Navy and said, all right, I, and I went, the pitch for Naval Academy was they, the Naval Academy produces more pilots than the Air Force Academy does said, all right, okay, so I'll do that. That's logical. That was enough to get me. So then I got to the Naval Academy and toward junior year, they're like, all right, what are you going to do? You get a Navy pilot, drive ships, submarines, Marine pilot, looked at all my friends who are already signing up. So I was just like, what do you guys do? What are you signing? We're all going Marines. Come on, man. It's, you know, this was like two years after September 11th. 
I said, all right, all my friends are going Marines. I'm going Marine pilot. They got planes? Yeah, they got planes. Okay, Marine pilot. Go to flight school. You know, it's just a, a series of, um, again, blessings kind of taking care of a, a pretty naive and innocent, innocent kid. Um, got to flight school with the MV-22, like you mentioned. I was part of one of the first classes selected to fly that. Um, and that that probably really is what started my entrepreneurial journey. And I think the military is a great training ground for entrepreneurs. Um, and I don't know if anyone would look at a particular aircraft and say, oh, that's, that's what makes you an entrepreneur. But that aircraft, if you remember 2007, eight, it was not guaranteed that any service was going to buy it. It was very much experimental. It was, it was a project. Um, it was very much like a tough sell, even within the DOD. And so that was my first time kind of implementing technology and getting the sell. And I got to do, got to do that for nine years. So. Um, that, I mean, that, that takes me right up until getting out where you said, you and I have talked and um, like a lot of vets, I applied to grad school to kind of put off that, um, put off that, that decision of having to grow up and, and get a job. And HBS was extremely, you know, generous to vets. And it's at HBS that I got exposed to the idea that led me to PSS, which was the idea that, you know, there are over a hundred thousand profitable, well-running small businesses that are obscure and are not written about in TechCrunch or the New York Times or anywhere really, but they're profitable and they drive, you know, the U.S. economic engine. So I said, I'll go to Encino. I'll learn how to do sales because it does not come naturally to me. And um, that turned into a whole adventure, but eventually found myself in a space where I could search for and acquire small business. Um, that's exactly what I did. And a lot of my colleagues, I'm happy to see her on this call. Um, so we took over that company last year and, um, you know, now we're serving public schools all over the country. And there's, there's so much to unpack in your response, because I know listening to other interviews with you, reading the blogs and um, uh, hearing you talk about your life, I want to, I want to maybe go farther back than that question asked, because I've heard you talk about your, your leadership philosophy, your, um, some of, some of the best teachers and leaders that you met, you were inspired by your parents and grandparents, right? Could you, could you talk about that influence? Um, because I, it seems like every, every interview I hear of you, 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 you point to that as, as truly inspirational for your life. It is. Yeah. yeah I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to bring it up. Um, you know, I, I grew up the, the son of immigrants, you know, and grandson of immigrants who came here from Jamaica, um, and, you know, I, th I think there's probably a common theme through immigrant stories, whether it's your parents or two or three generations, however long ago your folks got to this country, but that kind of pull togetherness, that sense of community, um, I didn't even realize it was a theme. I just thought we had cool food, we had cool music, um, but it was, they were kind of baking in these lessons um, of, of really what, only in the last year or two have I been able to like put a term to it working with other friends actually, um, like this idea of a generosity culture where it's like, you know, it's it, one, of the, one of the main books that gives this idea is the book called The Go-Giver, where the salesman is like at the end of his quarter and he's got to close one last big deal to make his number. And, you know, you end up going this journey with them and just kind of find out one of life paradoxes is that if you, if you really want to get more, you start giving, right? If you want absolute control over something, you surrender. To the you know the greater forces around, so that 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 completely came from 
parents and grandparents, you know, and, and cousins and aunts and in ways that I can't reverse, you know, I can't undo. Um, and I'm probably better off for it. And, and you, you also mentioned, um, and God, I love that quote. If you want to get more, you start giving. Um, and I love, I love paradoxes. Uh, I love the, uh, the, that they exist in complexity and those nuances. So your the message is, is resonating with me. Um, you, you said something in your first response. And just so you know, everybody, I'm, I'm going way off script because I'm fascinated and super curious. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Aaron. Uh, but you, you mentioned that flying the MV-22 and, and just kind of the Marine Corps experience um, taught you to be an entrepreneur. Um, and you've also mentioned how the, the channel that was created and you did a, by the way, if, uh, the, the blog post you did, um, on veterans day, where you kind of point to breakline education as well and mention, Hey, breakline wasn't there when you were pivoting out of the Marine Corps. And, um, you talk about having a friend go to Encino and kind of talk to you about how, Hey, a lot of the skill sets you've learned in the Marine Corps can benefit you as a salesperson. Could you talk about that pivot? Because I know you kind of pointed to the entrepreneurship element, but I would love for you to talk about getting a shot at sales because you went directly into Encino's um, uh, sales uh, leadership. Uh, yeah, the, the, par the parallel there is, the reason why I say flying the MB-22 is entrepreneurial is because we got, so you get to the, you get to your first squadron and, you know, it's a military, everything's got a manual and it's organized and, you know, there's history. If you, you know, most other aircraft had been to combat before. And when we got there, they said, okay, you guys are going to take the aircraft to Iraq and really prove it out. You know, is it worth, is it valuable in the battlefield, et cetera? Like, all right. Um, all right. Give me the manual. What's the manual? There's no manual. There's no. Okay. Um, what? some with some some blog posts there's no blog posts there's no you know there's no so it's, it's it's kind of funny because as a young pilot as a first lieutenant you get to your squadron and you know as much about the aircraft as the commanding officer you all are you know, you're gonna write it together um and so that and that was a blast that was that was formative then you you, you mentioned i got to encino probably about series b to the point where we say, okay, we probably have something here. Let's try to start to scale it, not across the whole U.S., but um, you know, further than just kind of your nucleus, right? A lot of B2B enterprise software companies, you start selling to your friends, your, to your network, people you could drive to. You're like, all right, let's go a little further than that. So I take over a territory um, that's um, basically the Midwest, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Michigan, Indiana. All right, okay. All right, what's the playbook? Let me see the manual. There's no manual. There's no, you know. Uh, and by the time I got to a series B startup, I probably I was hopefully smart enough not to ask. But that's the parallel. That's when you draw back to previous experiences and say, okay, well, let's try this. Right? Here's here's a here's some framework we could use by which to orient. You know, because it's not, it's unacceptable to say I have no idea. Right? We just we start to hypothesize and, and work on stuff. So. Uh, Again, I, I think it's a blessing. None of this is like really, it's not a really well engineered career path, but um, you know, just keep asking people to do stuff and try to solve problems and things work out. I, it cracks me up that you said, because I know how analytical you are. I've heard, I've heard you talk about building out probabilities and, 
and being very quantitative in your reasoning. But then, and I know this is like, you're a paradox too. You started this by going, it's kind of whimsical, childlike, just kind of directing where, I, where I've ended up in my career. Um, I'd love for you to talk about how you ended up um, uh, taking over a PSS from a Vietnam veteran um, after four and a half years at um, Encino, you want to take on this this entrepreneurial journey, and if you wanted, if you could talk a little bit about how you made that decision, but also how you came to decide on the education sector and and PSS specifically. Uh, yeah, so so I knew kind of reaching back to HBS, I was introduced to this concept, and I think a lot of people call it the search fund idea, which is you know search fund is kind of the term that encapsulates a lot, but it's basically entrepreneurship through acquisition, whether you raise money to, you know, search or you work for a bit and you say, oh, you know, I've got enough of a skill set to go acquire a small company. And I, and I, and I just want to pick that adventure. I, that adventure just kind of spoke to me. I think it's, I think they're different sports, right? By the time I left in Sino, we were, you know, uh, weeks away from going public. It was a different ball game. There was managed, there was manuals out there, you know, it was, um, it felt it felt different, and 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 I wanted to get back to that adventure that I kind of deferred for four years. And the company is completely successful. The founding team was like, "Great, go for it. If you find something cool, let us know. We'll write you. You know, we'll, we want to help." <laughs> um, and so, my I will completely admit I did not look in that. People would say, "What are you looking for a company?" Yeah, yeah, I look for a company. Uh, what kind of what sector? What kind of company? And I would say a profitable one, like one hopefully not losing tons of money. Um, oh, okay. What do you do? Like what industry? No sector. I was, you know, fairly agnostic. There was things, of course, I would not do, um, you know, that I just, you know, wouldn't be a good fit for, but, um, my key, my key for searching was, and I, I, I tell searchers this when they're looking, we all have the same criteria, you know, it's like 5 million revenue, hopefully, you know, 20% cash flow. The numbers are very much similar for searchers, but my theory was, Okay, I've got a limited skill set, but I think I know what it is, right? Whatever that little circle of competence I have and where I have energy. And so that's a key. So then you're basically just looking for a lock and say, if I add this to X company, boom, possibilities are endless. And so I would, you could find a company that is great. Let's say you're into sales, right? Or into scale, whatever it is. For me, it was sales. So just... So there's no mystery. That, that was my key. I was like, I didn't know how to scale a sales team. I just did it. And for other people, it might be operational excellence, might be marketing. Um, again, all things I'm not really good at. But if you get to a company and they're already booming in sales, like you would be, you know, you kind of would take them from 99 to 100, right? If that was your key. But if they were just really struggling with operations and you're like, wow, if we do this, this, and this, you guys aren't seeing, then, that's, then that company just feels right. And so that, that's what PSS was. I wasn't looking for a company in the education sector. Now, my, my dad came to this country on a college scholarship and just, you know, just drilled us about the value of education. So was that there in the background? Of course. And funny how, you know, life kind of comes full circle, but that, that, that was my whole search. Like you've got a small skill set, you've got a key, just go look for the right lock. I love that. And, um, I want to introduce a quote that I've heard you say that's one of my favorite quotes, but I also want to pause because one of the funniest stories I've heard you tell 
is about your Harvard professors that would berate everybody about wanting to start a company <laughs> and introduce the idea of the search fund and, and uh, that there's all these profitable companies out there. Could you tell that story? Because it, I can, it just, it's such a good visual for me and I love it when you tell it. Yeah, yeah. So the two professors, I'm gonna, I'll name them and because they wrote a book, which I think would be helpful if you're interested in this kind of entrepreneurship. Um, there's a professor named Royce Yudkoff and Rick Ruback. These two, um, these two just kind of, these guys that, you know, Royce went to the business school and then had a very successful career in kind of bigger private equity, Bain Capital type stuff. Um, and then Rick was, um, it still is, a tenured professor, academic. And they, they're like, the, you know, they're like the odd couple. And so they were just these two kind of different, one clean shaven, one scruffy, but both very grumpy old guys. And so we're at, we're at HPS, um, we're, you know, probably one of the main qualities of there is you could raise a million dollars easy to do anything. For investors who, you know, their main problem is having too much cash, they kind of figure if you're at the school, you know, you're kind of a risk a reduced risk back, which is a very bad way to look at it, but that's how they looked at it. So basically we all were like, we're here. We somehow got in, let's rate, let's think of something to raise some money because there people are out here giving us money. So we should of course take it, um, which is why it's a bad idea. It creates um, adverse selection. But anyway, so we were all thinking, me, myself included, of what are we gonna invent? Uh, and then Uber was big, Uber was, you know, um, they were kind of on their march up and they were recruiting a lot of MBAs. So we're like, everyone was doing the Uber of something, like an Uber of nails, nail job. Seriously, we're gonna do your nails at work. That was the thing, um, Uber, Uber of haircuts, Uber of barbers, you know, all these ideas. And so we would tell it to these two professors and they were like, you guys have got to be the dumbest smart kids ever assembled. And we're like, what, what? They're like, you guys aren't going to make the next face space. Like, it's just, it's just a low probability bet, you know? So they just start, so then they go chalkboard, right? Just PhD in economics is going through the numbers. And we're like, yeah, but enough people have done it that it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem undoable. They say, guys, there's, that was, that was a number I gave you that, that day stuck in my head over a hundred thousand profitable small businesses in the U.S., very unknown. And in the unknown part, the obscure part is the key because there's 100,000. And actually, 100,000 was a screen that they use. And these are businesses generating over a million in free cash flow. So, you know, if you say, well, half a million, then that number then goes to like 300,000 businesses. And oh, by the way, there's like 50 of you knuckleheads chasing them. It was just a supply and demand thing. I said, well, well you know, <laughs> knowing my skill set uh, and how incredibly smart my classmates were, I was like, all right, I'm going to figure out whatever they're doing and I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm not going to compete with, I just, it would, it's competition is ultimately destructive. So um, that, that's what led me, Zane, I think that's what you're referring to, which led me on the path to say, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, and right after grad school wasn't a good, you know, a good time, uh, for me to do it from a family perspective, but I knew I'd come back to it. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> and I never heard I never heard of the search fund, so I, I think it, it's it's incredibly educational too. Um, 
Okay, so back to the quote that I've heard you say that I absolutely agree with. Supporting educators in schools is the fastest, highest leverage way to create the world we all wish existed. Could you expand on that? Because I think it gets at the heart of what you're trying to do at PSS. Yeah, I mean, look, you mentioned it at the top of the call, right? I mean, we're as a society trying to come to grips with a lot, right? How we treat each other, you know, how institutions function and interact with the community. Um, everybody's got their cause, you know, their own personal thing that really touches them for for very personal reasons, whether it's climate, you know, or, or healthcare, right? Um, it could be getting, you know, eliminating food deserts, which exists in cities and rural areas. I mean, just there's a, there's like a lot of work to do, right, while you're here. Um, and so we could all kind of talk about, oh, okay, we got to do this, we got to do that, we got to make a more just world, a more peaceful world, more... But the, at the base, the base pyramid of all of that, to me, is education, right? All of those systems take people, take people from what is hopefully a more learned society, a more educated society. So, so look, all those problems are great. We're all going to, you know, pick one of them, hopefully, and work on them and add our talents. Um, but, but to me, it's, it's hard to see a more higher leverage, um, you know, higher ROI, immediate way to, to push, to like move the needle, then young people, right? Young people are the, they're the potential energy. Um, they're the unlocked fuel of any country. You wanna know how a country is gonna do in 30 years? What are they doing with the young people right now? In Central Africa, in India, in East Asia. It's, it's a very, very strong predictor. Um, so, so for me, just being in this space, it's like, I don't wanna leave this space. Like we will be here we might be here for decades. Thank you for expanding. I really appreciate it. Um, the When you and I first talked, it was last March. You were just kind of getting started. I was actually in my first couple of weeks at Breakline and uh, the pandemic broke out. <laughs> <laughs> and people weren't going to school anymore um, in person. And so this is the context. And I, and I love... This next question, and by the way, folks, I'm gonna, I have a few more questions, but we're, we're 25 minutes in. Feel free to get your questions in the chat for Aaron and Casey and I will weave them in. Um, uh, you've said that, that PSS doesn't sell products to teachers. We solve their problems. Um, for example, during the pandemic, PSS has been providing teachers with hand sanitizers, focusing on a critical and urgent need um, outside of your standard product suite, which was the, um, uh, the learn on demand system. Um, can you talk about your approach over this last year um, and the role that empathy plays in how you think about engaging with your customers? Yeah, so I was laughing because, so we closed on the acquisition on March 4th. Um, and I'm looking at my colleagues who, or on the call, uh, the governor of North Carolina shut down all schools on March 24th. And you kind of, even before that, we could feel it coming. Like a week, 10 days before, like it was foreshadowed that the government would order all of our customers to close, uh, it, which, is, which isn't just us, right? It wasn't just happening to us. But one, it changed my approach because coming out of Rick and Royce's class, they're like, all right, okay. So then, you know, they said we're the, the dumbest smart kids, but then like 50 of us took their class. So we were like less dumb to them. Okay. 
you guys are going to get a business. When you go in there, your intent, your, your natural inclination is going to be to ruin this business because you don't know anything about it. You know, you didn't start it. It was, you know, started probably by someone who's a hard worker and built it organically. So here's what you do. Don't do anything. Don't, don't do anything. Just for six months, learn the business. And so I said, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, I would do that. Well, I, I, I could not do that after, um, you know, all of our customers in, you know, our entire, uh, you know, global economy changed within three weeks. I didn't have, I didn't have 24 weeks that they wanted. I, 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 I literally had, you know, 24 hours of a honeymoon. And so, A, you know, you do things to make the company safe and sustainable, um, able to work remotely and make sure everyone on your team is okay. Um, but then you like call your customers and say, hey, you know, I know you guys aren't in session. Um, you know, how, how are you doing? How are things going? It, it was, I mean, I, I make I make light of it, but at, at some point you're just like, look, kids are out of, you know, students are out of school, teachers are upended. You know, literally in, um, our, we're in about 2% of schools around the country. In, in some of these are large school districts. Think of Raleigh, Durham's like, the 15th largest school district, they lost kids. They lost track of where these kids were. I mean, they didn't lose kids. The kids are with their parents, but they had to quickly go to online learning and then they were taking attendance. They were just trying to, I mean, they were trying to make it work. There were kids that they hadn't seen for weeks. And then you start to think, okay, well, man, all right, that kid's learning is being impacted. Well, what else do kids get at school? Kids get meals at school. Kids are, act, it's actually a second set of eyes at kids in case you know, they're in distress in the home. So now, so now you start to unpack it. You're like, okay, <laughs> selling technology is coming way second or third to just call it. And then, and then teachers and principals still to this day, actually, and we'll see the fallout over the next couple of years are just, they're just stressed out. They're under a ton of pressure. Um, so for us, it more became about this ecosystem we live in and the health of it than just, uh, you know, than, than just selling printers. And, you know, we have to take a leap of faith and say, like, let's be servants to our marketplace. And, you know, knowing that in the end, we'll, you know, we'll probably be okay. You know, we'll hopefully be okay. I think that, I think, I think it was that just that simple. I don't, I don't, I don't have like a, a cool buzz buzzword or phrase for it, but that's, that's how it literally um, played out. It did play out that way. The next, 10 or 11 months, our business was in a classical recession over 25% down for several quarters. Then February, you know, you could feel the tone of the country start to change. Okay. is pretty much, is pretty much consensus that, you know, kids weren't, not that they're immune to the disease, but you do a risk reward and say, okay, we could probably do this safely with them in school. That reduces a lot of other risks between meals, obviously education. Now these kids are, you know, over two years, you're about two years behind grade level. Let's get kids back in school. Okay. The relief money starts flowing in, you know, so schools start to reopen February, February and March end up being our business's two biggest month, month sales wise, you know, with, and I only bring that up just to say we didn't plan for that. We didn't know when that was going to happen, but. I think I got to think a little bit of that is is a reward for you know trying to do the right things and and, and not necessarily being greedy and self self interested. I've I've heard you um, 
I want to I want to pause on empathy for a second because I've heard you talk about um, every like uh, empathy being something that uh, everyone has the capacity for, and um, I it, it struck me because um, I'm fascinated by all things leadership and, and culture and the root word of, of culture is is to cultivate and when you talk about developing empathy and every individual having the capacity to cultivate empathy. Um, I've often thought about the parallels between kind of the character of an individual it is equated is um, equivalent to the culture of an organization. And it makes me think when you talk about generosity culture, um, I know that's something that you live and encourage at PSS. I would love to hear you talk about um, how you've how you've done that and what does that mean at, at PSS? Um, well, we're still it's still in it's still in progress. Um, and I'm doing it with with really um, like considerate and deliberate colleagues. I, I think that's the way to do it. I, I I don't I don't think I have any any secrets other than to say, hey, here are these values that seem you know, fairly hard to argue and push back against. Wouldn't wouldn't it be great if our workplace was this? Okay, and then from there, would stem. Wouldn't it be great if every, if when we had interactions with customers, they could feel that? Um, I think it's something largely we did accomplish at Encino, and and we're accomplishing at PSS, no doubt about it. We're going to get there, but you start by articulating the goals. I think number two, you start to build the shared language, and vocabulary and that comes from you know reading certain books having certain discussions and and i think the i think the third thing is is the community so i'm i'm pulling from gary nickel or chad gardner or michelle or gabby you know folks on the call um my wife's on the call i'm pulling from her you know because it's like we you know we do talk about as much as you want to do all these things you got to be in touch with your own you know insufficiencies right and just say cool this is it that's right i'm gonna bring again my my key my limited skill set i'm gonna bring my insufficiencies you bring yours let's put them all together um you know and just act with positive intent love it thank you aaron um ha have a question from jean-luc curry who is uh, on the call and also a going through breakline um also a marine corps uh veteran um, says, hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining Breakline today. Could you talk about uh, how you and PSS see the future of K through 12 education in the United States, specifically across two dimensions? First, technologically, and second, from a policy perspective. And how does PSS plan to adapt to those changes? That's a hard question. That's a tough one, man. Yeah, he didn't give me an easy one. Whew. Right out the gate. Could you give me the future of uh, what we spend 7% of our economy on. Um, you know, so some, some things, some things are going to change, right? Like a lot of industries, the tide has come out. So you get to kind of see what's going on beneath the surface of the water. And, um, and then, and then we go from there. So, um, what do I think is going to happen? Um, in my heart of hearts, actually, I don't think a lot of advancements going to happen. I think, a lot, I, like, I know what I want to happen and what we probably all hope would happen, and something less than that will happen, unfortunately, because you know of the entrenched, of entrenched forces. Um, 
which I don't want to be overly cynical because an institution that is designed to be institutional, to survive ebbs and flows. So after one global pandemic, you can't say, all right, we're going 100% remote. Um, I, I do think at the margins, you'll see more technology in schools. That's kind of, that's already been clear. It's not all going to flow out. Um, from talking to educators, here's here's one thing we do. I mean, I'll use the Jeff Bezos method because in over the last 25 years, people ask, well, what's going to be a future retail? What's going to be a future of this? And he would say, I don't know, but let's think of the things that will not change. Like, here's what will not change. In-person, face-to-face um, interaction will remain to be the best way to educate young people. Very the end. I talked to, you know, I think our school interacts with 2,400 schools. It's like 60,000 teachers. I, to, a, to a teacher and a principal, I have not heard one of them even begin to make the case for 100% remote learning, right? This, it, it may be they're, maybe they're all behind the curve, but something just tells me from a group of people who do this very hard work day in and day out that the most effective way to do it is in person. There will be more technology that comes in and will augment. PSS is already um, looking at digital products that will launch over the next um, year or two. Um, but some of it will stay analog. And so we're, we're thinking a lot about this digital analog continuum. Um, we think there's, we think, we think there's, there's something there. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of what we think will be the same. Like kids will continue to be in buildings, you know, curricula will be slow to adjust, but, but, but hopefully it'll be faster than it was. Right. I have, I have a follow-on question, um, Aaron, from my teammate, Casey, um, who she and I, she and I philosophize quite a bit. So it's a little bit of a philosophical question, um, which I appreciate from you, Casey Deeds. Uh, she wants to know what trends in education make you optimistic or gaps that keep you up at night? Um, the trends that make me optimistic um, is you saw more parental involvement because kind of <laughs> parents had to be teachers. So that was forced. Um, and I think that will, that'll hopefully inspire, you know, more parents to, to be more involved in, um, in their child's education in the school system in general. So that's a good one. Um, a related bullet, but a sub bullet is something called pods. Um, this idea of educational pods where, you know, we, it, um, education became a bit more kind of small groups and localized because schools were literally closed. And so parents kind of came together in these collectives and said, um, you know, let, let, again, individually we'll take, we'll all be more involved, but collectively we can be a bit more cooperative. Um, so that's encouraging. Um, those are those are probably the two, yeah, probably probably the biggest one. There's other ones like more technology in schools, but um, that's probably the biggest trend. Um, the biggest gaps uh, there there are a lot of gaps in our educational system. Um, in a lot of ways, folks, I you know I, I I've got a hard time being the alarmist in any group, but th but that is an is is an institution that is. On the, on the edge of failure, if you just look at um, the results. Um, and, and you could argue about the results. Like, do we look at test scores? Well, we know those are problematic. But, but in, just, in just about every way you could look at the output of an organization, 
uh, it, it's, it's, it's not doing well. It's not doing what we would expect. Um, and if it were vastly underfunded, you would say, oh, let's just throw more money. But then you'd say, then if you examined it, you would say, well, we've, we've actually been increasing funding and getting fewer products. You know, that, that wouldn't fly at like Apple or Google, right? They wouldn't, just any traded, publicly traded company, you wouldn't expect their cost to keep going up, 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 and then, you know, um, their output to go out. So in a, in a large way, it is a, it is a failing institution. It's in a way that we should be involved if, if you have school-age kids. If you don't have school-age kids, it's the system, you know, your kids will inherit, so you should also be involved. Um, one of the bigger gaps I think we're going to see is, um, is we're, we're going to see um, a flight of, 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 of educators out of the field, um, particularly younger educators. Uh, and it's already an aging, uh, the teacher base in the country is already aging. So, you know, TFA, Teach for America is one of my favorite organizations. Um, and we probably need like two more of those just to, just to fill, just to fill that in. So that's, um, that, that's probably the biggest near gap. One of the biggest design flaws if you're asking, um, uh, is the fact that most schools are funded by, um, does anyone know how schools are funded? Uh, you no, but we do, we do have questions around kind of systemic changes and what you'd recommend. So this is, okay. you're, you're weaving right into it. Okay, so I'll, I'll flow right into cool. it and I'll try to be concise. But the way, the, the main funding for schools uh, is actually at the state and local level, not the federal level, actually. The, feder the federal funding kind of just comes in to fill in <laughs> the gaps created by this pretty poor funding model. The funding, the way schools are funded is by local property taxes. So areas that have high property values, which are probably all areas, they're nice areas. I'd want, I want to live in some of them. I want to live on the beach. Um, they are able to raise more funds per student, um, you know, than areas that, you know, are less desirable, right? Where the property values are just low and um, the reason why that's problematic, in case we all can't, you know, don't agree on it, one of the reasons why I believe that's problematic um, is because that creates a, a negative downward economic cycle, which says, um, you know, it, it, sh it should almost be the opposite, right? Like, the, the, if, if we believe education is the passport to the future, right? I, don't, I will tell you, I do not believe in equal outcomes. Um, it, you know, I, I believe in democracy. Um, but I do believe in equal opportunity um, in a hyper way, in hyper equal opportunity. So, so that is systemically uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest problem uh, with the way we've set up our education system. And we, and we could fix it. It's very fixable. I agree. Um, I ha have a question from, from Angel um, talking about the, the last year and a lot of... Um, friends complaining that online school for their elementary and middle school kids does not work, um, that online framework. They're unable to focus. They think this has set the kids back significantly. Um, do you think we can help kids make up lost time? And, and what, are, what are some of the, the means by which schools and their parent school partnerships, um, what are they gonna need to do to make that happen and make up that gap? Yeah, so, so a two-parter. Actually, I think what educators are starting to find is that um, is that, so there, so a couple of bullets I want to organize, a couple of thoughts. One is we actually, they're actually, we're actually finding that some students are flourishing 
in a remote environment. If you think about it, just think back to your, maybe you're someone on this, you know, someone who would flourish in that environment or think back to your friends who we all have different personality types and different modus operandi, how we like to operate. And so actually being in an environment with 20 something uh, other young people was distracting. And so we hear, and now it's anecdotal. I, I haven't seen studies that have come out of it from teaching colleges, but anecdotally you hear stories of kids and they're probably extroverts, right? Who are just rocking and rolling in group settings and in the building. And then they're really struggling at home. And then your stories of um, kids who are struggling in that setting, but at home, they're just rocking it. They have their work, they can log in, they could really focus and lock in. And so one of the things I hope comes out of it is that we start to pay more attention um, to the individual student, the individual kid. Um, and there's a couple of, I think, assess, you know, we've all probably been personality tested, uh, you know, beyond what we should, but there are insights that come out of it. It is good to know where someone falls on an introvert extrovert scale. It is helpful to know where someone falls on a hands-on versus reading versus auditory versus, you know, kinesthetic learning type of scale. So look, again, I'm not ultimately optimistic (laughs) that schools will adopt a lot of that framework, but some will. And and that's where I put the responsibility on, on parents to know their kid. And I'm not saying every parent's got to know how to teach base 10 math or phonics or order of operations and exponents, sine and cosine. That that stuff is, we live in the internet age, guys. That's ubiquitous. There's Khan Academy. There's plenty of great instructors who could teach it. But I think the parent's responsibility is to know the individual kid and their proclivities and how they operate. And then lastly, take a holistic view we have K through 12, that's 13 years to edu- to make someone more learned. Not, nothing says you got to read in first or second grade because the state says it, right? That, that, that kid could learn to read much later, right? That, and I'm, I'm using reading as just one um, of many examples. So the education system we have compared to alternates is, is, is actually just really not that strong. Um, it's, not, it's not from a design, operational design perspective. Thank you, Aaron. Um, and I don't say that, I don't say that to be like negative or create a political platform. It's just like if we were all walking around or like someone had a boogie in their nose, you know, I would let you go the whole night. You'd be like, oh, you didn't you didn't tell me about the. So I'm just saying as a matter of fact, like out of concern and love and like, OK, we could work on that. Like it's easy. Just, you know, just get, go to the bathroom, get a napkin. Yep. So. Com- completely agree. Um, the switching gears a little bit, we have we have an an audience full of uh, our Apex community, Maven community, veteran community, um, and and a lot of them, about uh, more than half of them on the call are making their current transition and making choices about the next step. Um, So Chris Molino, um, uh, one of those breakliners has a question uh, and pointing to you being an expert at transitioning. You've done it a lot more than just once. Navy, grad school, uh, Encino, PSS. How did you sort through pursuing your passion, purpose, your personal responsibilities for financial security, and the confidence to kind of take that leap and, and get there? Yeah, um, I've never. That's a that's a good. Uh, I'm going to work on that title, like a expert in transitioning. 
It's like someone who's uh, who gets fired a lot. <laughs> it's like, you're an expert at transitioning to your next opportunity. Um, I know I, I meant, you meant as a compliment. I'll take it as such. I've never heard of the phrase that way. Um, look, I, I wish I had strong insights because I think part of it is no kidding my personality. And I do believe like your personality in your mindset. Um, I don't think they're determinative at all by any way, but I feel like you should know it and be and start to get comfortable with it because you're, you know, you're going to have it for the next 50 or 60 years, you know, hopefully and um and, and get to and get to live in it so again being in my own skin i know that i don't um feel like super attached to, you know to um to where if like if my goals say go here and seek this adventure that i can't you know leave it i'll of course miss people and organizations but um I, I think more of it's based on my personality type than any kind of insights that i would have one of the questions was about financial security the, the, you know, the first thing you could do there is just keep your burn rate as low as, as humanly possible. Um, that, that, that makes that, that, that phrase right there, burn rate is directly what leads to this idea of golden handcuffs, which is, you know, when you get to a certain income level, you get comfortable, you grow into it, and then you're kind of stuck. Um, and I, there's a, there's a, I was surprised to learn this someone who grew up in a family, you know, where people didn't have really high incomes, but there's a world of people with high incomes that feel really stuck in their jobs. I can, I can fathom that, uh, you know, in a heartbeat. Um, so, so one, I think that that's kind of my short terse answer to the financial one is to, um, is to really control your, to control your burn rate um, on that one. On, on the, on the transition thing, I, I don't know if I have many secrets. I think I think know yourself, be really in tune with what your goals are, and be ruthless with going after them. And so, everyone here, the question is how? Okay, you're in a situation, you've you've oriented to it. It's probably good people. It's fine. I'm here. I want to be here. I can't get here by staying in this place. Then the question then becomes how how long do you wait? To make a move and put in preparations and that and everyone's got to answer that question for themselves for me i'm wired i'm the guy that's like i i wait two minutes i <laughs> oh i just reoriented it I, i'll give it because i'm getting older and slightly wiser i'll sleep on it i'll do that i'll give it at night and then next day we're working on we're working on a plan we're working on a transition plan and if that's not you then that's you know that's fine yeah, and experts at transitioning, that's not a negative thing with this community. That's what that's what so breakline's all about, Aaron. So you're in you're in great company. Yeah. Um uh all right, and I and I, I gotta go to this question because it's getting a lot of love, a lot of love in chat. I see you, TJ O'Connor. Um, and I empathize with it too, because my when people ask me like who's the greatest leader I know, it's my mom, who is an elementary school teacher for 35 years, still teaching. Um, and TJ O'Connor asks, as a husband to a teacher who pours every ounce of her heart and soul into her students, how can we better support our educators and ensure they have the resources and support systems in place to reach and positively impact every student possible? Another heavy hitting question for you, Aaron. <laughs> That's heavy hitting, TJ. Um, you're going you're gonna to clearly win husband of the year out of this group here. Um, so congrats to you. 
that and thank you to your wife for what she does um she has to be you know we talk about education everyone is in education for the right reasons like <laughs> no i've met anyone that's, i'm here for the glory and for the money it's like what um they're absolutely there for the right reasons which to your earlier question makes serving them very easy look honestly the most tactical way that we can um that we can help them <laughs> i mean honestly is to raise funds uh, for them and to put the funds at the school level, not at the district level. So I'm getting really kind of, I'm getting really tactical here, but there's sites like, um, like donors choose is one, which is essentially like a GoFundMe pointed directly at teachers to fund the things that they want to fund because for reasons I've kind of alluded to, it's a highly inefficient system, um, where dollars don't get to the classroom. It's very wasteful. It's, um, it, it, Fun fact, there's 13,000 school districts in this country. Basically the number of counties, like every county more or less is a school district. So there's 13,000 superintendents. I, I've met superintendents. We don't need that many, trust me. There's not, there's just layers. So there's a school, then there's a superintendent, then there's the state, then you know, it's just, um, it's, it's actually, it's, it's unconscionable. So the, to me, the quickest, tactical way to help teachers would be to raise funds or to donate to sites like donors choose uh, raise funds and make sure it gets directly to the principal or lower level um i think that's i think that's what we could do uh, i i you know individually like as pss i hope we grow in in influence and impact and there's ideas that there's things that we have you know that we would do some of them would be cooperative some of them i think would be fairly antagonistic um you know, towards the system, but we got to grow a little bit stronger before we can get too antagonistic. Love it. We, we believe in you, Aaron. We are optimistic as well. Um, I have, I, I can't let you out of the hot seat without asking this question because I'll tell you, Bethany and I spend a lot of time with Breakliners talking about how phenomenal a career in tech sales is. Um, yeah. That it can be a for somebody pivoting that has never been in sales, but the commonality of having a, uh, a, a track record of success and everything that they've done, which is the commonality across breakliner, breakliners, um, the meritocracy, the uh, ability, the problem solving nature, the being in line with revenue and, and the nature of the, the job. Um, we talk a lot with breakliners. Um, about the opportunity that exists within the tech industry and specifically sales. Um, you saw that at Encino and then you built teams and kind of pulled in, did, did hiring and coaching uh, and selecting for um, really strong uh, uh, account executive and, and sales leaders. Could you talk about why you think sales is a great fit as well as the characteristics that you would search for um, and select for for top salespeople? Yeah. So first I'll second the point. I think particularly for particularly for the veterans on the call, but 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 I'll blanket state that sales, when you enter any organization, um, I would ask all of you to highly consider going into sales. Why? Because I think there's a first of all, Examine why would you not go into sales? And I think part of that is because there's this misconception of, you know, like oily used car salesmen, which hopefully I didn't offend anyone. Like I, I buy used cars, they're great. Um, 
but they, but they, you get this like hyper transactional pictures really what I should say. Right. And, um, I, I particularly went in sales because I did not want to do sales like my whole career, but I went into it as a training ground. One, most business schools don't teach sales at all. If, if they do, they do it pretty poorly. That, that, that is actually, um, that's actually a disservice because in a lot of ways, sales provides the blood of, you know, the entire the ecosystem of an organization. Um, that's revenue money, right? Um, a couple of places a business can get money from a bank, investors or customers. I would suge highly suggest that you get money from customers. Um, it's more sustainable, it's lower risk, et cetera, all that stuff, right? So sales, that's what sales does. But in the course of doing sales, you end up having to work on all these others. And I went into it as a stretch assignment, just hoping not to get fired. I can make a quota, not gonna be good at it. I don't like, you know, it's not it's too transactional. It's like, you know, there's no empathy in it. I was wrong about everything I thought about sales. Glad I went into it. So you go into it and you find yourself, most obviously, selling a product or service to the market. That's the least of it. A, that's a great education, if that were all you got. But then what you find yourself realizing you're doing is, you then have to, you're, you're matchmaking customer or potential customer prospect with product or service we make. And they don't always fit, right? <laughs> so you're, hey, this is, this is how we could help you. Let me learn about your business. You become consultative outside the organization, but inside, the, I did way more selling inside the organization to the product team. Okay, well, to sell the product, I had to start to empathize with them and understand, you know, okay, What's a database like? All right, you know, just from from ground level and go up, and so in in a huge way, I think being able to kind of talk to both parts of a market inside the organization outside is vastly powerful. The analogy I've started to paint together is uh, is I've got I've got a like a slight curiosity in triathlons. I have to do a lot of swimming, uh, swim, swim remediation myself to get into triathlons, but hear me out. So I started to look, my friends that do triathlons, tra um, you know, I've asked them like, okay, run and swim, bike, run. If you look at the people who are most dominant at that field, you would think they would, it's, there's three events. So the top players should one third come from running, biking, and swimming. That actually is not the case. Triathlons are usually dominant. If you're an if you're an amazing runner, and then you can be average in the other two, you're going to tend to be more dominant. Triathlon, you could be an Olympic swimmer, and it just doesn't it just doesn't set you apart far enough, right? The race kind of you know traveling really can't be won in the swim. It can be lost, but you know can't be. There's still two more events, and that's the same way with business. I know I wanted to be a leader in business, and if you look at where most business leaders and CEOs come from, they tend to come from the sales organization for, for better or worse. And I don't think that's because like the sales organization has any monopoly on talent. I think it's because of the things that those folks are put through in their career. You have to kind of do a small internship with product. You got to do a small internship with customer service success, with fulfillment, that, those sorts of things. So that that's that's the case I would make for going in for going into sales. Um, there's other cases like it is it is kind of one of the most pure meritocracies that you'll find in an organization like you may you, you eat what you kill as they say right um so that's it. a pitch for sales 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Aaron, for the last hour. Thank you, Team PSS, for joining. Um, thank you all, uh, the entire Breakline family, for joining. Thanks again, Aaron. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, all. Cheers. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I'll tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about uh, some of the content that we're putting out there. So please join us again next Tuesday here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>